Warning, the following podcast contains naughty words and opinions. While neither of these has been shown to be hazardous, you should be aware that exposure to both has been known to cause chafing. Apply only to available ear-shaped head holes. Cease insertion if resistance is met. Welcome to Cinema Slop, the weekly podcast that seeks the answers to the important questions like, why does everyone assume that being is so damned important? And how many pounds of feces does it take to write sweets to the sweet? Our content is prepared and served to you by myself, John, a man currently being measured for a fur-trimmed long coat. And Jason, an entity capable of great things. But couches are comfortable, so I only accomplish okay things. At the end of each episode, we select a movie by our favorite actor and proceed one step further away from the bacon. This bacon is yours, brought to you by Honey. Bees are sick, yo. Little known fact, bees are the natural enemy of the podcaster. We're a brittle and flighty bunch. Alas, our wings cannot carry us to the safe pollenless fields of Valhalla, where the bees are our friend and we nary have a care in the world. We season this content with our secret blend of comedy, commentary, and mead. Shitloads of mead. Jason, mead's a seasoning, right? Yeah, sure, whatever. We topped this Chicago dog with celery salt, spoiler peppers, shit green relish, two fucking tomato slices, one damn pickle spear, some bitchin' onions, and yellow mustard, all on a poppy seed bun. Alright, I believe the table is set, so that leaves one last order of business. Let's surf up some cinema slop. Last time we watched Shadow Builders, where Tony Todd showed us that he is in fact a magician. His most impressive trick was disappearing whenever somebody turned their back to him. But where the hell did he go? This week, we investigate Mr. Todd's magic act even further and discover that when you turn your back to Tony Todd in Canada, he vanishes but reappears behind someone else in Chicago. It turns out that the constant terrifying appearances of a hook-handed Todd has firmly injected him into the 1980s folklore in the form of a Chicagoland regional variant of Bloody Mary. The gist is this. Don't fuck with Tony Todd. Which just generally seems like good folklore to me. This week, we watched a documentary about the real cost of underfunded public housing. So you believe that underfunded public housing leads to intense poverty, rampant gang activity, and a ghostly entity that will gut you when you say their name five times in the mirror? Along with severe continuity issues, shit-stained walls, and a shitty education system that allows not one, not two, but three different studies on urban legends. It's like this movie should have been called Urban Legend or something. All right, you've taken this too far. You must renounce your statement now and introduce the proper movie. Damn it, you're right. This has nothing to do with Urban Legend. I apologize. This week we watched Candyman, a 1992 horror thriller from the writers Clive Barker and Bernard Rose. We made it, guys! Yay! We did, but now I have to take umbrage with your intro because I don't think I agree that there were severe continuity errors. They might not have been severe, and they might just have been me not liking some of the writing decisions. We'll we'll get there. Because, you know, I had a VHS player. Would you say it was the size of two Harry Potter novels? At least. Maybe maybe the collection of Harry Potter novels. It was the story machine of the time. <laughs> so, as mentioned by the synopsis, we got here via Tony Todd, who is the titular character, Candyman. I can tell you that Cinema Slop is following Mr. Todd, and he seems like a very nice man. We, we do enjoy the Tony Todd. He is, in fact, one of our favorite, I don't know, how would you call him, character actors? A character actor, but with the asterisk next to him, quality actor. So, followed by him, we got, uh, again, on the podcast here, Virginia Madsen, right? She was in The Prophecy. We hated that movie thoroughly, so... We, we won't hold it against her specifically. No, no, of course not. She plays Helen Lyle. Uh, she's a grad student. Her husband in this is Xander Berkeley. He plays Trevor Lyle. He is a professor. I think philosophy, maybe? <laughs> I think generic liberal arts is good enough. Good point. He's been in some stuff, you know, you know him, you know him, too, with my research for this guy right here. 
uh, Virginia's partner in crimes, Cassie Lemons. She plays Bernadette. Just to round out the rest of this cast, we got uh, Vanessa Williams. She plays one of the moms in the projects. And then we got Dewan. Jawan. He plays Jake. He's a little kid. This is his first movie ever. He did pretty good. If you've heard some other stuff that I've, I've said in the past, I hate child actors. So this guy gets a gold star. Not only as a child actor, but just as an actor. Like I, I would say he would, would, would have been a decent adult actor if he was just trapped in a child's body. <laughs> He could take some feature roles here and there, I think. Yeah, I'd hire him. Um, maybe I will if I ever make that movie. Uh, and then there's just two characters I just want to mention because they're, you know, one has to exist for the other one to be named, I guess. Uh, Mariana Elliott, she plays Clara, a throwaway character in the near beginning of the film. And because I had to mention her to mention this guy, Ted Raimi. I, I believe his character name was Clara's hand bra. <coughs> Yes. He felt up Clara. His name is Billy or Clara's hand brawl. Ted Raimi, aside from being in everything, is amazing in everything. Yeah. He didn't fuck this movie up anyway, so. But he's only in it for like 12 seconds, so. Which is actually, I think, his average screen time uh, per role. He's the skeleton key to horror movies, so go for you. I mean, I guarantee we'll be back on him sometime. She eventually gets the radio working and she basically tunes into Radio XPTN. That's exposition. Yes. Exposition Radio here with your host, John and Jason. I'm just going to kind of vaguely describe the opening because it's actually, one, it's really pretty cool, and two, it's actually kind of executed in a stylistic way that will make it kind of hard to follow beat for beat. But basically, we, we open up on an overhead shot of the city. This shot is like a camera looking directly down at the city of Chicago, and the opening credits play over that, which is, you know, doesn't seem remarkable, but it's actually, I think, one of the first times that that had happened in a movie. Um, apparently, they had some crazy special helicopter gyroscope. So I just thought I'd point that out. We cut to a pile of bees, and then Tony Todd says, through his amazing voice, what's blood for if not for shedding? And then the bees swarm all over the city, and then they make sort of a head shape, and then we fade to Clara. And at this point, we have Clara doing voiceover. It might have been meant to be Clara, but I think it's a random other person trying to tell a story of an urban legend that she's heard of. So basically like you get Clara talking about how she's got this boy in her room, you know, that she wants to get laid by, but it's not her boyfriend because her boyfriend is such a goody two shoes. And then the bad boy that she wants to screw turns out to be motherfucking Ted Raimi. Such a bad boy. He's got a leather jacket and greased hair and everything. I think that might've been a driving factor in my purchasing a leather jacket as a child. But basically Ted Raimi is the character Shia LaBeouf was trying to be in the fourth Indiana Jones movie. Or any movie he's been in, really. <laughs> True. Anyway, the voiceover tells us that she wants to give it to, to Billy, and she's being all flirty, and she takes him upstairs to the bathroom. She says she wants to show him something. She starts, like, disrobing in front of the mirror, in front of him, and then she starts telling him the story of Candyman. And basically, you know, it's it's sort of the modified Bloody Mary story. At least that's what it was when we were growing up. The old, you say a name in the mirror... A certain number of times for Bloody Mary, it was three, but for Candyman, it's five, because Candyman is, like, extra powerful. You gotta call him more. You gotta want that shit. He's all hand-brawing Clara, and she's like, say his name into the thing, bitch. You can't deal with it. Candyman's too intense for you. And he says it four times, and then she kind of, like, laughs at him and says, well, you know, nobody ever gets to five. Go downstairs, you, you pansy. And she sends him off to go downstairs and drink beer. But then while she's standing in front of the mirror, she says it the fifth time, and that's when... Candyman pops up and just fucking full laser out of nowhere. 
cut to the real world where we see the woman that Jason thinks is telling the story in voiceover talking to Helen or Virginia Madsen. But the movie doesn't stop there. This movie likes to play with your sense of space and time and disorients you and then reorients you like in about 10 seconds. We cut to a recorder recording the origins of pan- candy, the origins of Candyman. I don't want to keep trying to say Pandyman. Pandyman, Pandyman. I don't know what's going to pop up except like a pansexual fucking spokes thingy. He's a, he's a pansexual spokes thingy with pans for hands and he just smacks you about the face until you die. So what you get is a different person telling the same story to a different researcher but it's not quite revealed yet but the new narrator says that Candyman killed the young girl and killed the baby that she was babysitting but billy got away but it turned his hair all white and he went insane so i guess he had kind of a storm thing going on so then it reveals like it pulls back and it reveals it's a different person and she says are you doing a story about serial killers at which point virginia madsen walks into the room and sits down next to this second reporter so you now have the two reporters together talking to the student and bernadette's kind of flirting with the student which i think i said was a woman but it's actually a guy sorry (laughs) well it's playing with you right because there's the two stories and they're trying to collect information on urban legends and their grad students doing a research paper on this on this thing for their thesis or or whatever what have you virginia madsen the helen character did it with a woman that had a different story basically than the dude that bernadette was talking to who had you know different details to the same sort of story which is basically how urban legends work yeah there's there's a little bit of business going on before we cut to a classroom where a professor is lecturing on urban legends and he sort of illustrates the point again you know, in his lecture talking about the urban legend of people flushing alligators and where did it happen and all that shit. And Virginia comes in and you think that this has all been for this class. At least that's what I thought. <clears throat> but then the lecture ends and she goes up to the professor and it turns out, bam, that's her husband. The little cluster of students gathering on her husband. There's a there's a flirty little co-ed down there and uh, Virginia's instantly a little bit uh, curious about what's going on with that. Yeah, her name's Stacy. Of course she's trying to hit that. <laughs> I thought it was Becky, but whatever. They're both the same. <laughs> they're interchangeable sorry beckys and stacy's we don't mean you harm the professor is xander whatever his name is and you, you kind of get the the sense right away that he's a little bit weaselly and sort of just like a not great husband i mean that's just the uh facade that you know xander berkeley gives off he's got that smarmy kind of feel about him if he were a garbage man he would have been emilio you know the gum chewing sort of Oh, ladies, man. Oh, of course. We cut to uh, Virginia Madsen in a room, and she's transcribing the interview from earlier in the day. A maid comes in. What, what do you call like a call? A janitor. A yeah. f- female janitor woman comes in. She goes, oh, Candyman, I know all about him. He's from Cabrini Greens, and I've got a friend who knows all about that shit. And so Virginia's like, well, can I talk to her? And the cleaning lady's like, yeah, conveniently, she's 10 feet away in the hall. Your friend is down the hall. Seriously? Like, how convenient is that? Yay movie for being efficient. But it is just funny, because usually when I'm talking like, oh yeah, Joe over there, he knows about it, because he's in the same building as us, I'll just point. I mean, I get it. This is before, like, cell phones and shit, so... She was using a computer, which is pretty high-tech. Yeah, it wasn't a typewriter. Her friend... Uh, comes in. The first woman is named Henrietta, and Henrietta says this is Kitty Culver. Kitty says that a lady heard something or someone coming through the walls, so she called 911, and the cops didn't respond. She called again, and then the cops finally decided to come, and by the time they got there, the woman was dead and gutted and had been cut up with a hook. Henrietta then says that it was Candyman, but then basically refuses to talk about it anymore, other than just saying, ah, it's Candyman, he's scary. 
Yeah, so then we cut to more microfilm research now. And basically it's Virginia double-checking their story. So she's like looking up on the newspaper to see if there was a murder of this woman whose name I think is Jeannie uh, at Cabrini Greens. And it was, she finds the article basically about the death. Cut to her talking at dinner with Bernadette and they're talking about the history. And there's a little bit of detective work here. And basically she shows her the two exterior photos of her own building and Cabrini Green. Yeah. Basically, the exterior of Cabrini Green is the same as her building. And so basically she tells her, like, yeah, they originally built our building here, the condos, as projects. But they realized that, like, they could build a shittier version of it in a more geographically landlocked area and they could keep the poor people over there. She's talking about the Gold Coast area. So that's where her building is located, which is a very high-end kind of neighborhood in the Chicago near north side at that time. And that's that's where they built this original project. And they built it, you know, with cinder block and all this other shit. And it made it as cheap as possible. But then when they realized that if they're going to make this, you know, public housing, they're going to have miscreants running around because that's just bullshit fucking racism. So they decided to just, you know, turn, convert that public housing that they originally built into condos. And that's, in, you know, where... Helen bought her place and in the one line is oh so you you know what you pay for this place like oh you don't want to know and I'm like it's 1992 you probably spent like I don't know $60,000 for that shit (laughs) and now it's probably worth like 2 million like (laughs) exactly yeah they so they built Cabrini Green on this you know land much farther out that's near the highway it's near the cutoff western point of Chicago at that time this leads to sort of this interesting peculiarity of design which is that the units are all concrete between them, except for this one part where the vanities in the bathroom are installed. And, you know, basically it's like the medicine cab- cabinet digs into the wall. Yeah. And I guess the two medicine cabinets on the units facing each other butt up against each other to the point where there's actually no concrete between them. So they just put plywood up everywhere and it's all concrete except this one spot. The suggestion here is that the projects that they're, that the murder takes place in have the same layout and... Also, the woman that was murdered was murdered by somebody crawling into her apartment through the medicine cabinet to, you know, basically that was that was the hammering sound was somebody breaking through that part of the wall. And then that's how they got in to get her, even though the entire fucking concrete shoebox in theory would be pretty safe otherwise. So, yeah, I mean, that, that covers a lot of exposition in like one scene, you know, but yeah, that's the premise of Bernadette and Helen trying to prove that this murder can be explained through just some serial murderer or whatever gutting this woman in her bathroom. There's this really cool moment then where they decide to do the Candyman thing in the bathroom together. Bernadette pussies out. She doesn't say it the fifth time, but Helen does. And there's this really cool transition where after she says it, the, the, the camera shows Helen's face and then it shows the mirror and then it kind of like moves just enough so that you realize they're not there anymore. And then the camera pulls back and Helen's asleep in bed and you're like, oh, we just jumped time. But like it was shot in a way where it seems like it all happened seamlessly. And that, that's sort of a reoccurring theme throughout this movie is the distortion of time and place. It does. It makes you uneasy. And that's why I really like that, that kind of style in the way this film is shot that way, because as a child, not knowing these kind of principles of film and, you know, stuff like that, this movie just creeped me out and like scared the shit out of me. Well, this movie's got all these little touches like that that just add up. As a film goer, it's, it's nice to feel like 
the movie is actively telling you a story and that if you stop paying attention, you're going to miss something. You know what I mean? The movie doesn't hit you over the head with it. It's subtle. No, not at all. You're, you need to be paying attention in order to see it. So anyway, um, <laughs> this is like probably the one jump scare of the movie, like outright jump scare. And it's literally a jump scare because Helen is lying in bed. And you kind of like have a moment to like detense after they say the, the candy man into the mirror. And then out of nowhere, Trevor fucking pounces on the bed like a dick. Yeah, but this one's on purpose to, like, keep you on edge. But, I mean, this is, like, the cheapest of the jump scares. Oh, it's very cheap. But anyway, then we cut to uh, Bernadette and Helen driving to Caprini Green to investigate the Candyman story. And basically, Bernadette is afraid that they're going, basically, to a bad neighborhood looking like cops. And Helen is like, well, I told you to dress conservatively. And she's like, yeah, that's the point. We look like cops. And this is where they introduce that, you know, Caprini Green, or Caprini Green, is... It's basically like a tenement. It was a very bad neighborhood in Chicago. Probably one of the worst of the time. Yeah. So, I mean, think about like when you're watching The Wire and there's all the uh, the season about the towers and the drug like corner guys. It's all it's like it's very much that these these towers are named. They're the whites and then some other ones. And there's the Rojos. Like there's entire rap songs about the about the Cabrini Green and its position in chicago during that time frame it is it's horrific what went down there and bernadette is absolutely right to be worried about going here this movie fictionalizes a lot it does not fictionalize the problems or the style in which they shot cabrini green and hell they even shot a lot of it in cabrini green which is shocking to me they're talking about the history of the buildings and they're talking about you know the gangs and stuff but like the whole idea of um, sort of classes and separation of undesirable trait, you know, characters and all that stuff is like very prominent in this movie. But anyway, so Helen, her big reason for wanting to go to the greens is that she doesn't want to write the exact same paper that everybody else writes because everybody can, you know, do a little bit of casual like reading and say like, okay, this urban legend came from this area. We want to actually like interview people and 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 see where this came from and which is admirable um from a sort of journalistic perspective i guess um oral history you know is a is an art and she wants to go that route so off they go yeah and she also wants to prove her theory about you know these being public housing and having the gaps between the medicine cabinets and all that stuff so anyway my my note here as they approach the green is this philip glass music is atmospheric as shit Oh, man, we didn't even mention that, did we? Philip Glass does the music. Scored the entire thing. It, it's masterful. Philip Glass doesn't write music that, like, sticks in your head, at least not in my experience. But, like, it washes over you in a way that, like, you kind of feel it. It, like, punches your soul. <laughs> it does. It punches your soul. <laughs> I mean, Philip Glass is the candy man of music. If you say Philip Glass four times or five times in a mirror, he comes and plays something for you? If you say it four times, he plays something for you, but he never releases the chord. <laughs> they they pull up, and like this is, like I said, the wire. Basically, you've got the gang lookouts, and they are sort of inspecting Helen and Bernadette to see what the hell they're doing there. When they don't answer, they basically call upstairs to warn everybody that cops are coming, like, strategically. So Helen's actually put at ease by this, because she's like, it's okay, they won't follow us, they think we're cops. Like, she's like, nah, it's cool, we're totally safe now that they think we're cops here in this horrible hellhole of, like, a gang warfare, like, war zone, you know? Oh, yeah. Whatever, they keep going up, and they stop to take photos along the way. 
and there's these massive murals of graffiti and one of them says sweets to the sweet the mural is covering like an entire wall and the door to an apartment and this woman just opens the door as she's taking the photos and it's like kind of startling it's actually a decent jump scare but it's vanessa williams and she's got a dog and she's just like stone face just like what the fuck are you doing yeah where there's fucking white people on my goddamn floor what the fuck is going on why aren't you you like where's your uniform at like kind of thing like get the fuck out of here you're gonna get shot but then she closes the door and they kind of walk away startled and apologetic so they find the apartment from the uh, newspaper article bernadette she's at her wits end being at this murder scene oh she is uneasy as all fuck she doesn't want to be here she's just not having this yeah i think that between the seven guys that were a little too interested in why you were there at the base of the building and the rottweiler and the murder scene i think i would be pretty uncomfortable too oh as as one should be i think helen's got a little bit too much uh gall to be there wanting to do this she's 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 got gumption that's for sure she just needs to prove this fucking story of this weird urban legend that no one ever knew about i didn't mention it earlier but her husband is a professor teaching this subject and there was a little bit of a spat about that there's a little bit of this insinuation that she's banging the professor or she's married to the professor but she's paranoid that the young girl in his class is trying to take her place a lot of things in this movie like that that are sort of echoes you know like one character echoes another or like one situation echoes another and you know she's kind of trying to prove herself as a woman in the field too it's kind of a undercurrent of the you know the entirety of the movie she seems motivated to be just taken seriously for a number of reasons, whether it's personal or professional. Because uh, otherwise, why is she pushing so hard? Like, you know, because this seems not great. But they enter the apartment. Just like she said, there's the the space behind the bathroom mirror. They look through it, and it's straight up and broken through, um, just like they predicted. And Helen decides to go through into the neighboring unit, which is just like... Now you're crawling through a dilapidated wall into an area that looks like it's been used recently by, like, a shitload of squatters. I mean, at this point, like, I'm, I'm like, no, girl, you, you stay where you are. You get the fuck out of there. <laughs> like, the scene they set with these apartments is, I don't know, beyond recognition because you don't see these this sort of, like, poverty in, like, a, a apartment building ever. Mm-hmm. This is, like, urban exploring kind of shit well it's it's urban exploring but like in a place that is supposed to be inhabited yeah so it's just it's off-putting how you know just raw and and you know weird i, I mean i assume this is all shot in a sound stage in la somewhere but you know this is what's meant Green to look like and i'm pretty sure it's kind of close like this was strange in all the ways that you would believe there's not like upside down crosses hanging everywhere and all that like it's just filth it's lived in filth and it's just un like you were saying unnerving yeah so i mean the scenery that this all, all that sort of you know filmmaking and you know scene setting kind of thing like that just adds to the movie so well it just makes you you know feel uneasy at all times you actually develop a sense of understanding of the floor plans of the apartments as they're walking through and kind of get like Helen's version of the apartment versus that one, like where they are in relationship to each other. And like the whole thing is very deliberate and it shows. So if, if you haven't seen this movie, I just watch it. She 
goes through the apartment and she kind of just pokes her head around and she's taken photos until she finds another hole that she crawls through. And when she crawls through it, the camera shows us the reverse angle of her coming out. And she's crawling out of the mouth of like a wall-sized mural of who we learned to be the Candyman. Um, But it's like the Candyman is like vomiting her up. And this is where she finds a pile of candy. And she picks up a piece and she unwraps it. And she sees that there's a razor blade uh, stuck underneath, like, one of those, like, mini candy bars you get. Yeah, it's like a fucking uh, Three Musketeers or some bullshit. She rushes back to Bernadette, uh, and she jumps through the mirror to scare the shit out of Bernadette, which I thought was funny, but... Yeah, dick move, Helen. Dick move. Total dick move, but also, good on you. I mean, that jump scare wouldn't have happened if this movie were being remade, because she only did it because she ran out of film and wanted to go get more. (laughs) That's a good point, yeah. But Bernadette's like, no, fuck that. We are not coming back here. I'm done with this shit. But they go to leave the apartment and they're scared by the neighbor with the dog who was watching them earlier. They talk to her for a minute and she's very wary of them. She does not trust them whatsoever. You know, they say we're here to do a study, the urban legend. And she just immediately says like, no, I'm not going to talk to you. You're just going to make us look bad. You think we're all the same, like those assholes out there with, you know, with the guns out front. I'm just here to raise my kid. I need to just take care of my kid. And it's actually this really sort of affecting speech. Like, I, I don't know about you, but I actually found it kind of touching the way that it was delivered. It was very believable to me. You know, it was. And good on this movie for doing that, because it's easy to just follow the stupid tropes that people think about that. There's two moments in this scene that I thought were actually very well played. The first one is Vanessa Williams. After she's had a moment to sort of collect herself a little bit, she says, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be rude, but the, the white folk that come around here usually aren't the handshaking type. You know, I, I kind of thought like that's actually like a really interesting but like succinct way to put it. But then they have this bonding moment shortly after that where Anne-Marie is holding her baby and the baby sort of spits up on her shoulder and Helen just immediately goes into like mother mode and starts like trying to help her like get the spit up off her shirt and you can see that Anne marie starts to soften a little bit based on the fact that helen and bernadette are actually taking a little bit of time to engage with her just as a person you know which again most movies won't even do that when they're making a movie let alone you know just as character you know but i mean they're also playing on other you know women need to be motherly kind of tropes bullshit too so you know virginia could have just as much said yeah well, and Bernadette kind of just chilled off to the side for for the whole puke thing, so... Well, she wants to get the fuck out of here, so... And Bernadette's like, fuck, fuck your baby, I'm out of here. <laughs> fuck your baby, fuck your dog, I'm out of here. I've already peed myself twice. <laughs> uh, okay, so Anne-Marie eventually tells the story about how Ruthie Jean, the woman from the newspaper article, was murdered and nobody came to help. And it's basically the same story that we heard earlier, except now we find out that, that Anne-Marie was actually listening to it happen. You know, so she says that it was the Candyman, and she was a witness. Yeah, she's the one that called 911 twice. They never showed, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You know, poor police work in Chicago. Hit that one. That's not really a trope. That's actuality. You know, we jumped to um, to dinner with Bernadette, Helen, Trevor, and a new character, Professor Purcell. And Professor Purcell is this creepy old sort of like lumpy, doughy academic guy who looks like a really shitty knockoff of Stephen Fry. He does. I wondered why he looks so familiar to me. As I mentioned in the open to this, we have found yet another human that has done a fucking paper on goddamn Candyman. He's supposed to be like the foremost expert on this shit. And I'm just, it kind of irks me a little bit. I don't know why he does a fine job of fucking doing his little expositing all over the place. 
but it just irritates me. This is also where I find most of my continuity issues, because mm-hmm. if I'm to take him at his word as the foremost expert, I should believe what he is expositing to us. Okay. And that being that uh, the Candyman, uh, I think his name is like Daniel Robitaille or something like that. This uh, son of a former slave that invented a shoemaking contraption. And this man then went and had an affair with another, you know, rich white person's wife or something or daughter. Daniel Robitaille was the son of the guy who came up with the shoe thing, but that's why he was able to learn how to paint and, you know, have sort of a rich, polite society sort of life. So he became quite a well-known portrait artist, and he was commissioned by a rich father to capture his daughter's virginal beauty. That's what it was. So they get to make in the loves, and father finds out about it and uh, sends an angry mom after him. And this is where all the weird lore about him comes from he was hunted down beaten within a inch of his life has had his hand amputated and then he covered in bee shit and left to be stung to death and then burned so a bit extravagant even for white people's standards <laughs> can i get pedantic for a second sure i thought i thought honey was bee vomit it is bee vomit but okay there's a lot of shit hey. in this movie so well i just i gotta i gotta earn my uh my your video store clerk cred? Uh, it was not bee shit, sir. It was bee vomit. I believe you'll find there's a major difference. <laughs> I mean, if you're being pedantic, why would bees sting him if he's covered in honey? Uh, well, I mean, I assume that when they smashed the hives to get the honey, the bees were fucking pissed. So wouldn't all the other people get stung too? With his wounds, he was probably the slowest runner. Look, when I was a, when I was a kid, I had a friend. We threw cement chunks at a beehive. Actually, technically, it was a wasp hive. When we threw the cement chunks at the wasp hive, I ran faster. He got stung six times. I got stung zero times. That's all I'm saying. I mean, when I was a kid, I, I found a wasp hive under a bench and sprayed it with a water hose and got stung a couple times, but I didn't run from it. No, it's because you're more manly than I am. I'm very weak and afraid of bees, as the, as the <laughs> intro said, and I run very fast. All right. So, yeah, backstory aside, this is what Purcell kind of explains that he's already written this paper. Purcell, in the most smug way possible, tells Virginia that she's out of her depth and there's nothing she could uncover that would ever master his piece of art that is folklore. Well, and and there's one line, I can't remember if it was Bernadette or Helen who says it, but one of them says, we'll bury you, could be a little bit of a, uh, I don't know, uh, we'll say a foreshadow. Yeah, I mean, at this point, all we really have to go on is folklore. Like, we're about halfway through the movie. Right now, all we have is the story of Billy, who got away and has white hair, and Clara, who got gutted, and then Ruthie Jean, who is could have been murdered by a serial killer or the Candyman, who really knows at this point. But we don't know any definitive evidence yet, and I think that's important. It it is, um, because the next scene is the direct result of that. So we cut back to Helen going back to talk to Anne Marie back at Caprini Green. And she's knocking on the door, and there's this little kid sitting there, and the kid says that she's not there. Helen says that she's there to talk about the Candyman, and Jake says that he knows where the Candyman is, but that he doesn't want to talk about him or talk to Helen. And then Jake says he's not scared of anyone, but Jake tells her that she's crazy walking around the green on her own. Which, at this point, I'm starting to take as just wisdom, not, you know, anything else, yeah, you know? Yeah, no, it's pretty much just that. But Helen says, well, you don't have to tell me anything about the Candyman. Just show me where he is. And then she's like, unless you're too scared. Uh, and Jake's like, fuck you. I'll take you to the Candyman. I don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah. 
so Jake takes her across the green. Basically, there's a there's a giant bonfire pile of wooden furniture and spare parts, and she asks about it, and Jake just says, uh, that's for the party tonight. And then Jake takes her to what's basically like a public restroom like you would see in a park. He says, uh, this is where Charlie, his friend, says a boy needed to go to the bathroom, and his mom was shopping across the way, and she was like, whatever, just get out of here and go over to the bathroom. And then the boy was killed. And a man from the store ran into the bathroom to try and help. But by the time he got there, the boy was found with his junk in the toilet. And Jake, this little kid with this, like, fucking wisdom of, like, an old man, this old soul, says, Can't fix that. Better off dead. Yeah, the way he described the scene and the way it played out visually was terrifying, in a way. Like, you got this little boy narrating with these glimpses of things, like, more suggestion than anything. Yeah, they start playing it visually for you as he's narrating it i mean i'm sorry there's a lot of narration in this and outside of tony todd fucking jawan fucking guy made that fucking perfect narrator i don't understand he's like what eight in this movie maybe maybe 10 i think there's something to like hearing this little kid this innocent little voice telling you that this super fucked up shit is happening the kid's just saying it like it's I don't know, like it's old hat. He's telling it to us like the way we would talk about like a Freddy Krueger movie in high school, you know? Like, Yeah, it's it's like recounting the days of, you know, like at school. Oh, yeah, you know, I had a test today and I, I took it and, you know, I, I did all right, I think. But, you know, they kind of said it in that kind of calm, subtle, shit happens kind of way. He's, he's almost like a Vietnam vet with like the thousand yard stare. But, like, he's 10. Yeah, is there, like, a Golden Eagle Junior Award we can give out? As far as I'm concerned, we can give it to this kid for this speech. It was spot on, so fuck it. Let's give him the Golden Eagle. We have our first uh, eight-year-old Golden Eagle winner. Ooh. Yeah, go you. Transition. Transition. (laughs) Helen goes into the men's room to investigate the scene, just like she did the apartment. She's taking her camera, and she's taking photos. This maybe rivals Renton's worst toilet in Scotland. For those of you playing the the home game, don't go to Scotland. Don't go to Cabrini Greens if you have to shit. Now, if you go to Cabrini Green, it's just a Target, so you can shit there if you want. <laughs> I bet the Target hasn't like cleaned it much either. So, oh, I'm sure there's still shit everywhere too. In fact, I have a project this weekend. You gonna go make sure that my note is uh, correct? <laughs> I'm gonna go take the largest shit ever and write "Sweets to the Sweet" in the, on the wall of the Target bathroom and shit. Well, and, and that's a good point because there is a shit-stained "Sweets to the Sweet" written on the wall. This isn't like a just a little light smear. This is like somebody molded the words on the wall. Like you can see the depth and texture of this shit. Yeah, that's why I asked how many pounds. It it was gross, and it it's like almost I don't know what three foot font, maybe two foot font. It wraps from the wall across several stall doors. Oh yeah, it took dedication to do that. Only somebody with a hook hand would be willing to put that much shit on their hand. <laughs> eh, whatever, it's my hook hand. I can just hose it off. It's fine. She opens the toilet, and this, I don't know, shocked the fuck out of me for no reason other than I'm afraid of bees, but the toilet was full of bees. <laughs> and this is another one of those moments where you don't quite know if you're in reality or not. It was shocking. It, I mean, it didn't scare me as much as it probably did you, but... I've got issues, okay? I had a bad experience. <laughs> as she's discovering the shit bees, a shadowy figure approaches Jake outside. We cut back in, and you see four scary guys enter the the bathroom and one of them is wearing a jacket and has a hook on his hand she's like whoa i i'm done here i can get the fuck out it's cool totally I, nothing's nothing's wrong i'm just gonna go and he grabs the side of her head and he just says i hear you're looking for candy man 
and then he brains her in the side of the head with the saw, like the the curved part of the hook. Yeah, and and he says, "I am the Candyman. You found me." And obviously, this is not Tony Todd, who we the cover says Tony Todd, and we know that's not Tony Todd. So it does look an awful lot like him. He's wearing kind of a similar garb as to what, as an audience viewer, you would think the Candyman would look like. He's like a reasonable facsimile. Like if he was cosplaying the Candyman. I'd be like, okay, that's pretty good. Like, his jawline isn't as strong. Like, you can tell it's not Tony Todd. Yeah, his jacket isn't as furry as it need to be. Well, I think he's just not as beefy. Like, he's just not as big. Yeah, his shoulders aren't as broad. But that said, he has a hook hand in the middle of a gang-ridden war zone in the middle of Chicago, so I'm still afraid of him. Oh, yeah, he also brains her with a hook, and she goes down like a champion. Oh, yeah, she's, she's out. We cut from her hitting the ground, basically, to a lineup. She picks out the guy. It's number five. Gilbert Lewis takes her testimony. Go, Gilbert. Like your work. But he thinks the guy actually killed all the people from the Candy Candyman murders. He tells her that they didn't bring him in before because nobody would testify against him. And she goes out into the hall, and Jake's sitting there, and Jake is afraid the Candyman's going to get him. But Helen tells him that now that the tough guy is away, that he's got nothing to be afraid of because the Candyman's not real kind of ends up being a theme well yeah at this point she's still trying to prove her thesis blah 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 this that and the other thing and then she you know she basically found him in a shit stained bathroom in cabrini green right if if i were virginia madsen in this in this movie i'd be like movie over right 40 minutes in but yeah no it's not it's not over because we keep following her we cut to her super happy to see trevor her husband and she's made this giant dinner he sits down and he kind of has a little subtle look of like, uh, I'm not so hungry. And then she says, you haven't eaten, have you? And he's like, no, of course not. And I just wrote, he's totally having an affair with Becky. Goddamn Becky. Goddamn Becky Stacy person. It was a nice, subtle thing. This this entire scene, that's all it is. It's just him not looking like he's excited to eat. And it's just a subtle little detail that foreshadows that he's off having dinner somewhere else or whatever, you know. Gallivanting with the strange. <laughs> exactly. Uh, And then we cut to Bernadette and Helen, and Helen makes a reference to how fucked up it is that when, you know, the people of Caprini Greens call in for help, nobody comes, but some white woman gets attacked and they're all over it. Oh yeah, they solve the case in a couple hours. This is one of the most overt moments of this, but it's actually pretty low in the audio mix. It's like they're walking away from the camera and you could miss it if you weren't paying attention. Like this movie is all about, you know, just sort of highlighting the inequity or hypocrisy in society it's a consistent theme very much so i mean i don't remember seeing this as a child because all that stuff was probably over my youthful head Mm -hmm. but watching it now even the fact that i live in chicago like it means a lot more that it's trying to do this i really appreciate that i think i've only seen this one other time and I, i don't think i caught it that time either but i think it was like a drunk movie watch for me hellraiser kind of is also way smarter than you expect and i think maybe clive barker is just as a writer, always trying to layer in some elements, you know, for the audience to take away that aren't just the superficial story, you know? Well, yeah, and this is also adapted from a different story. It was originally set in somewhere in England or overseas, mm-hmm. like Europe, some shit. But Clive Barker, when he found it and read it, he's like, I'm adapting this for a film, and this is where it needs to be set in order for it to make sense as a horror movie during this time frame. Props to him. I think he did a phenomenal job of taking this overarching kind of like folklore kind of centric story and turning into a considerate commentary this could have very easily been a freddy krueger there's a little bit of backstory and that's it but instead they decided to like make it reflective of society which is really cool because the entire thing is obviously about urban legends which then themselves are reflective of the fears of society i mean i'm gonna watch this again probably before 
the years out just so i can catch all the other subtleties in it because it is a commentary but it's not trying to preach to you it's just showing you i choose to take something from it because my old ride to work used to go right past cabrini green and i saw them get torn down and this super meaningful for me to see to like watch this and see it unfold this is the fictionalized version of what i assumed kind of happened there is meaningful in that way so that's why i like it i don't know between having music like you know philip glass and then high quality writing and just the camera work being sort of stark and and noteworthy like i said the first shot grabbed me right away and then the editing everything about this movie is just thoughtful and it, it all adds up to something better than it probably on paper should be when you read this as a plot synopsis it doesn't read like it should we're about a little more than halfway through the movie at this point you know our titular fucking character has not even really shown up yet so i mean that just goes to show how much how engaging this movie is because we've taken so long to even talk about just the beginning parts whereas on paper you're like where's Hookman man McBee mouth so you know yeah you know like you watch a urban legends or like a final destination or or what have you like those don't engage you like this does those give you you know simple satisfactions of the reveals and all that crap and that's it this definitely elevates the material or i guess i, I meant to say i know what you did last summer because that's the other hook handed movie yeah tony todd he owns the hook nobody else can have it yeah. Okay, anyway, we haven't even gotten to Tony Todd, and I've already given him the hook. So let's let's keep going. And it wasn't Michael Stokes, the screenplay writer at all. Definitely not. Definitely Bram Stoker. Bram Stoker's Fax Machine, the movie. <laughs> <laughs> they are in the parking garage, and Bernadette basically says, Hey, what luck. I got a friend of mine to salvage the roll of film from the camera that, that you had when you were attacked. You know, because the camera got smashed up. Bernadette also says there's also publishers that are interested in their, their thesis now that they've made the newspaper. Which is also sort of a weird commentary about how, like, violence somehow has elevated the interest in their academic work, but I'll just leave that where that is. So then, in the parking garage by herself, she starts hearing a, a voice in the distance calling to her, Helen, Helen. She turns around and she sees Tony Todd, the actual, real, honest-to-God Tony Todd, at the far side of the parking garage, and he just says, Helen, I came for you. And she says, do I know you? And he says, no, but you doubted me. I don't know about you, but like that was kind of eerie to me. Basically, anytime the candy man speaks in this, it's <laughs> fucking eerie. He speaks in these weird fucking half- It's poetic. Vague, true bullshit things. Like, I don't know, like, you doubted me. What does that mean? Are we supposed to take from this, like that? You know, you you said her name five times, but you doubted that he'd come, or or you've been looking for this all this time, but I'd never shown up. You doubted me, like you thought you bullshit. I don't, I don't know. You don't know, and that's the point. You have to figure it out. I kind of took this to be like Helen came to where the Candyman's urban legend was, and she was actively working to destroy belief in him. Yes, she has now unwittingly made herself the Candyman's enemy. I. I felt that way too once i've got more of the story yeah i mean i, I was skipping ahead a little bit because at first i was a little bit like what yeah but that's the point like that's why i like this so much but yeah let's continue before i start jizzing all over this fucking film there's there's a couple there's a whole bunch of lines in here i don't want to quote them all verbatim but like the gist of it is that he is he is the living legend of the urban legend and then we have this moment where reality sort of like 
twists and then Helen is on the floor covered with blood and she's in a bathroom and there's a dead dog and she looks at the dog on the ground and she picks up a knife and then she hears screaming and she opens a door to investigate the screaming and it's Anne Marie crying over her crib. This does not look good for Helen. No. I mean, I forgot this movie took this hard of a fucking left turn. Candyman shows up and then rams the movie into a wall. Yeah. Like, He's like, steering wheel? What? Left? <laughs> For real. It's, I mean, it's it's hard cut dead dog. You feel uneasy. You don't know what's going on. They don't, you know, the movie doesn't tell you what's going on. It just, you're there. As an audience member, you, you know just about just as much as Helen does. Exactly. As this happens, like, you're like, why are you picking up the knife? Then, like, as soon as she picks it up, like, there's bad ramifications. Like, you're discovering this at her speed, but with the benefit of not being as disoriented as she is, you know? So, like, yeah. you, you're doing the audience, like, no, don't do that. Oh, why'd you do that? Oh, fuck. Like, yeah, I can only imagine the screaming that happened during this, like, like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Kind of bullshit. This would be a great moment for a crowded theater, you know? Or a bad moment, depending on how you like that. Well, I think this movie would be great with callbacks. <laughs> do, like, Candyman screenings like you do with Rocky Horror or something like that? Yeah, everybody brings their own hook. Yeah. In the middle of the movie, you're throwing hooks. <laughs> feel like there's a lawsuit waiting to happen definitely do not just like drinking games don't follow our rules don't listen to us this is a bullshit podcast about bullshit things okay so the cops arrive and arrest helen uh good move so we cut to helen being booked and there's this scene where she's being searched this is so uncomfortable to watch i agree it's basically like a scene of her covered in blood and being forced to take her bloody clothing off and pass it to the inspection officer whatever you want to call it she's just slowly losing her privacy her autonomy like i just i don't know what you want to call it like symbolically but two scenes ago she's about to be a published author and now she is naked and weeping and covered in blood removing all articles of clothing in front of another human not understanding what happened and and the camera is just cold and unforgiving like it doesn't linger on her in a sexual way or anything like that it's just staring at her and it's just hard i mean this scene ranks in uncomfortability right like scenes that's made me like cringe a little bit mm -hmm. you know the dead the baby in train spotting most scenes in rec room for a dream yeah all of rec room for a dream <laughs> and this right like this is uncomfortable it's uncomfortable on purpose when as a character she's our she's our frame of reference you know so like the audience is to some degree the most empathetic with her and you're not really used to horror movies you know especially major studio horror movies like making you feel just dirty and sad i don't know this is an emotion that most movies don't go to yeah and they're not you're not making this you know like comedic that some people do like you know like orange is the new black or something like it's not meant to be any of that it's meant to be horrific it's meant to be uncomfortable and that they you do a really good job um so we cut forward and they basically inform her that she's being booked on murder and this is another really great scene where the detectives are basically like she thinks that like the one cop that helped her get the guy booked earlier is her friend and then he just cuts her off cold and is like you're being arrested for first degree murder do you understand? And she starts to say something and he just like screams, do you understand back at her face? Like th this is where the movie just, she is bottoming out and the movie is dragging you along with her. They follow this up with, she goes to make her phone call and she calls her husband and it just cuts to a voicemail, like a voice machine, an answering machine. A voice machine. Whatever. Fuck <clears throat> you. I'm keeping that in. And it's just like an empty bedroom. And this is like, uh, she was going to be published 
Now she's booked on murder and her husband's cheating on her. I don't know. This movie's just kind of a relentless at this point. And we cut to her alone in her cell crying. And she crawls over to the toilet, I think, to puke in it. And she looks down in it and the, the toilet fucking flushes. In this surreal moment, we see Candyman with the baby in the squalor den. And there's some weird shit going on. <laughs> yeah, so this is where I'm starting to get confused as an audience member. Because I'm supposed to be led to believe that Candyman is a real entity and has kidnapped this child. I don't I don't know that I should believe that. You don't you don't know that you should believe that or Yeah, I don't know what to believe at this moment, but we'll get to that a little later. Her lawyer is trying to get her out, and her husband's finally there, and the lawyer says they're trying to get her on murder one, blah blah blah. Cut to they rush her out with the coat over her head. Another cool editing moment. They go from the news people swarming her trying to get her to say something as she exits to a shot of a TV of her pulling back to them on the couch, watching the footage of themselves exiting. And it's just like the movie keeps doing these little things to just disorient it. It's great. At which point, there's a little discussion of, you know, the what the investigators are doing. Cut to Helen taking a bath, and she eventually asks him where he was last night, and, she's, and he just says he was sound asleep. And obviously she thinks that it's bullshit. So he leaves to go to the office to get some work, and this is when she pulls out the slides that she took earlier at Caprini Greens. And she sets him up in a slide projector, through some, shall I say, comically implausible refocusing, she is able to discern Tony Todd over her shoulder in a mirror. For those of you at home, you might have just watched Apple's announcement where they showed like the background, like focus, defocus thing at the uh, press event. You couldn't do that on a slide projector in 1990. That was some bullshit. But Hollywood magic, she finds Candyman. Earlier, when uh, Bernadette gave her the little film thing, I was like, the fuck is she doing with negatives yeah <laughs> god damn it what the fuck is wrong with this and i was like oh i i, I see now they're they're for a slide <laughs> projector oh i feel dumb now i just assumed they'd come in like the standard you know like film card or whatever just go to kinko's get some five by sevens yeah you can't refocus a five by seven everybody knows that you can't zoom and enhance enhanced this leads her to check her medicine cabinet this is like the other jump scare of the movie that's really cheap. A comically large hook hand jumps out of the medicine cabinet. I mean, like, this hand is like four times the size of a human. But it, like, jumps out the medicine cabinet and attacks her. And she rushes out the hall, and Candyman is there. And he just says, believe in me, be my victim. Creepy? <laughs> Look, Tony Todd is clearly a great mag- magician and is convincing as all fuck. I, w- I would have been like, sure, I'll be your victim. Let's do it. <laughs> Anything to get me out of this nightmare scape that I'm currently in. Well, and this is where Tony Todd basically tells us what's going on, which is that he propositions Helen. He says, you should be my victim. And if you're not, I'm going to kill the kid. Or she's given a choice, you know, like let this innocent child die or, you know, take its place. And- but, but John, there is no innocent. Blood is meant to be shed. <laughs> That's true. This is where you have to ask yourself, if you're Helen, is Candyman a reliable uh, negotiator? Can I trust him? I mean, that's a fair point. He's made of bees. That's a mark in his favor. He's made of bees. He's not a laser uh, guided shark or anything, but he's made of bees. Laser guided shark? I don't know. Like sharks with lasers that bark bees. I don't know. That's a fucking callback to something. Oh, the Simpsons with dogs with bees in their mouths that bark bees. (laughs) 
I get it. I was getting two two properties confused. I think it was like Austin Powers with fucking sharks with freaking lasers on their heads. and Yeah, but I'm glad we traced it back because now I want a shark with a laser on its head that has a laser sight for barking bees. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta aim those fuckers. Nothing worse than a wild shot when it's bees. You don't. Your bee shot needs to be accurate. Come on. Get your shit together, candy dog. Candy shark dog bee, bee barker. <laughs> Can we just call Clive Barker bee barker for now on? <laughs> if I had a dog, I would name it bee barker. <laughs> oh, for, you th- for those of you out there who actually name their dog bee barker, hit us up on Twitter. If there's one of you, I'll give you, I don't know, a copy of Candyman. At this point, she gets a hook to the back of the neck. You know, Candyman kind of is trying to like almost drag her, but then Bernadette starts knocking on the door and she's got it. She's got some flowers because she's a good friend and she knows that Helen's been through some shit. God damn it. So Helen calls out and tells Bernadette to stay away. So naturally Bernadette runs in and gets the murder fucked out of her, gets the fuck murdered out of her. I like the murder fucked out of her better. <laughs> That's a different movie, Jason. <laughs> if you want to suggest movie titles for a movie where somebody gets the murder fucked out of them, contact Jason at... <laughs> Trevor comes back, worst possible moment, dead girl on the floor, again, covered in blood. Helen's really got to stop turning up like this. So the cops come, and Helen wakes up to find herself on the bed, handcuffed. Uh, She tries to escape. You get some voiceover from Candyman, and I wrote this down because I think that this is one of the, like, there's two lines very close together that I think are important lines. I think this is one of those. I am a rumor it is a blessed condition, believe me, to be whispered about on street corners, to live in other people's dreams, but not to have to be. So th- this is like the, like, Freddy Krueger, like, hey, it's awesome to not be a corporal human being. You should be like a dream human like me. There's also other parts to this that make it bothersome, but we get into those a little bit later. Cut to Helen being institutionalized, which is, I think, appropriate. Uh, I mean, I think that's a... I don't know. She should be imprisoned, not institutionalized. Well, they do reference later on that she's in the institution to determine her fitness to stand trial. Sure. They're on, she's on a gurney and she gets shoved into like a room, you know, I guess the intake waiting area or whatever. And she just screams at them, you know, what are you doing? You can't leave me here. I can't defend myself. And then Candyman appears. And so Candyman kind of floats over her and taunts her. And she starts screaming that the murderer is there and all that stuff. They inject her with something, which was one of the worst hospital injection scenes in a movie, just because like it didn't look convincing at all. Oh, no. Yeah. Bad nurse. (laughs) When she wakes up from the tranquilizer, they take her into see the doctor. And the doctor reveals to her that she has been tranquilized for at least a month. Which is where I call continuity. If you're right in the baby sucking his finger scene, how is a non-conporal fucking entity kept a baby alive for a month. Well, he has all that candy. With razor blades in it. Well, he could have taken it out. The baby still has hepatitis. I'm just saying. (laughs) I mean, yeah, the baby's not in good shape. Candy does not make a good diet for a small child. I will concede this is actually a pretty good point. But I I think that it does beg the question, is the baby in the world or another place? That I didn't consider. I will concede that for now. Let's stop conceding things and more beer i like more beer but yeah he gets to park slope and the basically the first scene is basically of uh basically uh, basically and more basically do you think he, do you think you could dumb it down for me so yeah you know dr what's his fuck is uh kind of showing helen that she is in fact crazy she's talking to things that aren't there through you know through a video like we're kind of finally starting to see it from another person's perspective because so far we've only seen helen's at this point she's saying well no, I'm not insane. I can prove it. And she turns to her left and sees a mirror and says, I'll prove it to you. And she says, you know, 
Candyman five times into the mirror. And not doing what Candyman normally should do in this scenario, he shows up and uh, guts the doctor, who didn't actually say his name. Technically, I think he should be gutting Helen, but, you know, Helen has some weird sort of hold over him, so, you know, at this point, she's weaponized the Candyman. This is why you need the laser sight on your bee dogs is because she accidentally shot the wrong person. Yeah, you know. So the Candyman shows up, rips dude from anus and ape, and then uh, Candyman's like, it's it's time to go, Helen, and kind of like undoes her shackles and flies out a fucking window all backwards and shit. I just want to point out how insidious it is that he undoes her shackles, right? Because if she's shackled and they come in and find her with the dead body that's been all cut to shit, it looks way less incriminating than if she's unshackled. Yeah. So he's saving her in the short term, not in a way that's helping her. Like she's even more fucked now. Oh, <laughs> like most certainly because now she has to escape. You know, she looks guilty as fuck. She does what I think is the only thing you can do. And she throws something through the window glass and climbs out on the ledge. Well, she doesn't actually have to throw anything through window glass. Cause he went out at backwards. <laughs> Sorry. Candyman threw him out the window. Yeah, glass. Candyman threw himself out the window. That was the one helpful thing he did. Yeah. He gave her an exit. He's like, I'm going to incriminate you in another horrible murder, but here's a way out. <laughs> Let's hope the neighbor opens a window for you and continues this stupid storyline. Uh, she crawls over to the next room and she like knocks in the window and a nurse opens the window for her i couldn't tell either she accidentally kills this nurse by banging her head really hard on the ground or she does it on purpose either way helen is now pretty much a murderer i mean i'm pretty sure helen's murdered some people in this already right either through her own action or through being possessed or what have you Right, right, right. Even if Helen is completely innocent and Candyman actually did all the crimes up until now, she just killed somebody. Yes. But anyway, she gets out and she finds her way back to the apartment, which is being repainted. And God damn it, if Becky isn't the one doing the fucking painting. Fucking Stacy, God damn it. <laughs> See, now she walked in and I immediately thought, all right, it's been a month. The dude's moved on. He's probably moved out with another girl, with that other girl somewhere else. And this is just some innocent person that's that has bought this new place or whatever. Mm-hmm. I didn't even think to go straight to the Becky Stacy scenario. Yeah. You thought this was a free Jack where she was walking in on a nice elderly couple. Exactly. It's just some young couple in love trying to paint their new place. Fucking Pepto Bismol pink for some ungodly reason. <laughs> yeah. So my, my note about this whole interaction with Becky is that Becky is the worst fucking actor in this movie. It's terrible. She is atrocious. It took me about 20 seconds to figure out if she was sobbing or laughing in the corner. <laughs> I mean, both are acceptable. Don't get me wrong. Because if she's laughing, that gives depth to that character that you you would never get. If she's trying to sob, that's just another weird, I'm young, stupid, and trying to have sex with my professor. And now his wife, who's implicated in multiple homicides, is standing here with an, like you know in front of me. Yeah, so. I, I could be murdered. After she scares the shit out of Becky and Trevor and basically realizes that she's now lost the only thing she thought she had, which was Trevor, even though she knew it, we saw it coming. Everybody saw it coming. Trevor was a sleazebag. We all knew he's no good for you. You need to move on, Helen. You're better than that, even if you're currently institutionalized and implicated in multiple homicides. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure Candyman basically alluded to this to her in one of his little overarching speeches. So Yeah, I mean, Candyman is dissecting her life, basically. Yeah, at one point he said, make lovers clinging closer in their rapture like well that was that was actually in his discussion of why it's great to be a, a an urban legend is that you can make lovers cling closer by the fear that you strike in them in that 
is kind of a allusion to oh shit i didn't think about that, that way fuck i just walked head first into your point <laughs> did it hit you in the face john is your nose okay do you need a dap did you hear the bong <laughs> it, that's the problem with foreshadowing is sometimes it tells you things and then you miss it because you think it was something it wasn't that's not the movie fucking up that was me <laughs> no we all know where the blame is to lie here on the rolling rock oh yeah or the or the Mickey Olds. <laughs> All right. So Helen escapes the awkward situation, which is watching her husband try not to admit that he was fucking the grad student the whole time. And she goes back to Caprini. She crawls through the mirror in the uh, the murder apartment. She finds like where the ceiling of the apartment above has collapsed through, and she crawls up to the top. Yeah. So th- there's a mural of Daniel Robitaille being chased by the mob. Yeah, that's correct. She finds that Candyman is lying asleep on a table. I don't know about you, but I was just like, well, that that doesn't that doesn't jive with my understanding of Candyman. I mean, do bees sleep? Did she smoke him before she showed up? Like, <laughs> he's docile. <laughs> she finds one of those meat hooks, like the kind that they use in uh, like the meat packing plants to move large slabs of like hog meat. Yeah, it was the it was one of the like hooks that the original guy that was arrested was using, like a handheld hook. So anyway, she tries to stab him with it, and she gets him, but. He just, it doesn't phase him whatsoever, except that it causes him a tear in his eye, I noticed. He's an expressive man, so why not have, why not shed a tear for his immortal love to want to murder him? Yeah, I think he felt a little betrayed. But this is where he, he goes a little bit Hellraiser, which shouldn't be a surprise because Clive Barker, but he says that together their pain will be exquisite, but their names will live on and their crimes will be told and retold by a thousand believers. And this is just him going back to that it's better to be a legend than a corporal being. Yeah. At least what I took as a corporal being, because... Are you saying that right? Corporal or corporal? Corporal, whatever. I'm talking about bodily human. <laughs> the kind the kind that, like, squishes when you poke it. Yeah. Corporal is a, a position in military. Corporal is what you're hey, trying look, to say. Hey, I put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable, okay? <laughs> emphasis. I guess she buys the sales pitch this time. Um, because she says that she will sacrifice herself for the child. I don't think that was her plan, because she says that after she stabs him. I think she was really hoping the stabbing would, would, would be the go-to move. Well, well, yeah, of course. But if I'm Candyman, I'm like, I don't know if I, I don't know if you're committed to this child sacrifice strategy. <laughs> He's a poet. He's a, you know, romantic at heart. He, he wants to believe Helen is, you know, trying to, you know, fulfill her destiny, in a sense. Yeah, we're getting to one of the creepy parts. I don't know if you noticed, but his hook hand is slowly creeping towards oh, like her skirt. Yeah. The entire time, he's got this eloquent speech, and I'm just getting nervous watching where his hand is going, knowing that his M.O. is to cut people from, from stem to stern. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Uh, gut to gullet. His hook's getting dangerously close to her nether regions. Yeah. The tension in watching him, like, and his hook actually goes so far as to be obscured by her dress. Yes. And... They don't do it, but, like, the tension in that moment was severe for me. Uh, I was more focused on the the rest of it. So what was it that you were focused on? It, just the, the speech and the bees, mostly. Everything he says is basically either exposition or foreshadowing. I will, I will quote what, he's gonna, what he says. The pain, I can assure you, will be exquisite. As for our deaths, there is nothing to fear. Our names will be written on a thousand walls. Our crimes will be told and retold by our faithful believers. We shall die together in front of their of their very eyes and give them something to be haunted by. Come with me and be immortal. 
as doing this, you know, his hands creeping up her fucking leg and being all creepy. He then exposes his chest, which is hollow, and opens his mouth, which is full of bees. And then leans down and kisses her with a mouthful of fucking bees. Bee Barker has never been truer in my fucking existence. <laughs> the Candyman is a fucking dog with laser-sighted barking bees. And he's shooting them down her throat. This is where I, I start to wonder what of this is actual reality. Have we traversed into some sort of nether world at this point? Or her psychosis or, you know, like anything. Like she's... Right. She's the character of this movie that everyone needs to, you know, follow and do things with. I'm just, I'm, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but, you know, like how much of this is supposed to be real? How much of this is just allegory? How much of this is just, you know, surrealism, mm-hmm. all that shit? I mean, I think it's an interesting question because we, we know because of the security footage of her in the asylum that she experiences things that other people can't see. Mm-hmm. But we also, we know that there are things that can't possibly be explained that are suggestive of him being real, even if he's only real to her, you know, such as how she got from the one place into the apartment bathroom. The lost time is suggestive of psychosis, but it doesn't make any sense that she would have gone back there at that moment and, you know, cut that dog's head off. Sure. It's played close enough to the vest where you could think like, okay, when she loses time, she is the Candyman. But at the same time, it's impossible for her to be the Candyman if the Candyman is also undoing her restraints when she's fully tied up in the hospital. There's evidence in both sides, I think. So she, can't, so he physically has to have at least influence over the real world. Oh, of course. I believe that. I don't believe that she's doing everything herself. I believe that he exists as a corporal being at certain times to manipulate reality as she knows it. But I think that he only exists in front of her. Aside from his other victims that we're led to believe that exist. When he's over her shoulder, you know, in the photo and stuff, like, like he only manifests fully when it's either someone he's going to kill or just her. No, I believe that. What's interesting, though, is that on this B thing, I actually, I read something earlier today I wanted to add, just trivia. Tony Todd apparently was talking to a reporter, and the reporter asked him about the bees, and the, he said, yeah, th- those were real bees that were specifically bred to be on-camera bees, which is just funny to think about. But apparently Tony Todd said that, he, he said, I, have, I had a great lawyer. He basically got hazard pay for every time he got stung throughout the entire series of his appearances. And he sort of, I guess, insinuated that he got roughly $1,000 per time he got stung. He got stung a total of 27 times. Nice. Also, sag bees? Really? <laughs> Fucking sag bees? I'm just amazed that there's not some form of bee that doesn't have a stinger. You'd imagine they could, like, I don't know, trim them or... Nah, you can't really. They don't stick out. Put little bee corks on them? (laughs) There are sag bees. This means that the bee movie could have been much better if it were about the life (laughs) and times of sag bees. (laughs) You're not wrong. (laughs) It's like a knife through butter, you know, except an ape through cage. Ape through cage. I'm going to use that next time. It's like a hot ape through a cold cage. (laughs) That's not a, that's a bumper if I've ever heard one. There's one last line from the Candyman where he says something like, you're mine now and it's time for a new miracle. And he's picking up the baby while he says this. Helen pops back awake, obviously freaked out. There's a new 
bit of the painting, or at least this is the first time I noticed it. And you hear the Candyman say, it was always you, Helen. And on the painting, you now see her face in the mural. It was kind of alluded to that before a little bit because like there's so much soft focus and like weird lighting around her eyes always for I think it was led to believe that this was the girl who he was trying to do the portrait of but now with the little eye lights they match it ex- almost exactly to her. You're saying like it's like a Vigo the Carpathian moment where the painting has updated. Yeah. That's definitely true but like I, I noticed the resemblance and the, the sparkle in the eyes this time for sure. So then Helen grabs the hook and she runs out and she sees the funeral pyre. (laughs) I wrote funeral pyre, even though nobody's died on it yet. So I guess that says what I was feeling about it again. So earlier in the movie, Jake said that was for the bonfire for the party later tonight. I think the movie just fucked up and added a month. Yeah. But psychiatrist or warden of the sane asylum was like, it's been a month. I think that was a fuck up in dialogue. Story-wise, it seems like a fuck-up. The only other option is that they lied to her. and But even then, it would be the next day, so the pyre would still make no sense. So, so yeah, they enter the pyre. That I have casually referred to as a funeral pyre. I'm not trying to hide how I feel. She hears the baby, so she climbs up to, to find it. And as she's climbing, she's using the hook to climb, which I thought was actually pretty smart. But at some point, she sort of like peels a mattress away from the, the body of the funeral tower sorry i was trying to avoid fire funeral pyre and i just said funeral something else um the the junk pile yeah the junk pile and she crawls in but the hook trails behind and just as she's starting to slip behind the mattress jake the little kid looks over because he hears shit falling and you know yells and stuff and he just sees the hook disappear behind the mattress and that's when jake is like motherfucking candy man motherfucker's back yeah. He rallies the entire fucking city block and people just start pouring gasoline and shit on the tor- on the fucking, you know, pile. It's the 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 best moment in gang unity since, I don't know, 90 or 84, I don't know. Just whatever. <laughs> He's like, "Look, we need to get together as a community to murder that candy man." Yeah. So let's murder that candy man. I mean, this scene is actually pretty similar to, you know, the story of Freddy Krueger is that he was a, a child abuser and the entire neighborhood of parents got together to burn him to death yeah it's almost a similar sort of act of vigilante justice that these people that have been terrorized are now rising up to actually fight their own literal fear it's bizarre in their minds it's not an urban legend it's an actual person okay that's yeah that's fair pyre goes up and it's all in flame and there's a couple different conversations go on with the candy man and Helen in the fire. I hope you have them written down because I don't remember them, but they're very important. I do not. <laughs> God damn it. it. It was about them joining as one or her becoming an immortal. He wants them to die together so that she could be part of his legend. Yes. If Helen dies with him in this new thing, they can become a new urban legend. And essentially he can be a legend, but have a family. Like it's, it's the culmination of what he actually was trying to get in life. But in death it's the thesis of the movie right like that's it's all ending here it's also an interesting echo that now you know she is being burned by the lower class you know so she's now the upper class being burned by the lower class so you have an inversion of the actual Candyman story oh damn i didn't even see that one that's a good one i like that this movie is is it's ripe with these echoes and inversions of echoes and it's definitely drawing on ideas of interclass struggle and strife to like add 
authenticity to these sorts of you know moments and at the very least it's incredibly well told but i think that there is an, an overall point that it's trying to make which is you know more about humanity at large than any one particular thing you know and i definitely agree with that the parts at the end i mean i remember this speech i just don't remember what he said but suffices that the belief in me will continue on kind of bullshit you know helen kind of bucks that bullshit and tries to you know get rid of it and escape with the baby yeah she stabs him in the fucking heart with a flaming piece of wood yeah everybody knows bees hate fire and somehow you know like he kind of like dies by fire i guess again but she kind of crawls out of the wood baby in hand and somehow protects it from the flame like this fire is all around them you know it gets it's a little crazy yeah and and by my assumption she brought the baby into the fire to begin with but that's just different i guess uh i'm I'm kind of considering this to be a kind of fight clubby kind of movie uh, but she's bringing the baby out, so, you know, she kind of hands it to uh, Anna, Anne-Marie, and, you know, she's aflame, and it looks kind of awful, but kind of good. Like, her hair on fire looked weird, but they stamped it out, and all of a sudden she didn't have hair on fire. I actually thought that she didn't die until they cut to her funeral in a few seconds. Yeah, you kind of, you kind of think that she's survived, just horribly yeah. burned. So, I mean, obviously, like, she could have succumbed to her wounds or an infection or, you know, whatever. But in the moment, it doesn't feel like she's dead. Because it, it, like th- it feels like this victorious moment and she's fucking dead. I think that's what it's meant to feel like. The Candyman inside of the flaming pyre, uh, he explodes into a million bees and likely escapes. But Jake sees it. Jake gets what's going on. Kid's not dumb. Or dies. You know, you don't need to think he escapes. I think the meaning is that he died. But at the same time, he formed at the beginning of the movie in that very, very early shot in the telling of the legends. He forms uh, as bees around the city and then they transition into the story. No, you're right. I mean, I, I recognize why it could be taken the other way. But I think just because the shot mirrors the earlier shot, to me, it was escape. I saw it as a different way, but we can get into that once we get through the rest of this. Then we cut to the funeral just straight to the funeral and this is why i was like oh damn she's dead and there's all of four people at the funeral you got the snarky professor you've got the husband you've got fucking becky and then you got the priest and i think that's it well she killed everyone else so but then basically the entire city block from caprini green shows up and marie is leading the charge they're all fucking there jake's there she walks up and she drops the meat hook on top of the uh the coffin we cut to trevor the husband, uh, waiter, on the toilet, just not pooping, just hanging out in the bathroom, avoiding Becky. And Becky's obviously out there, and she's obviously mad. It's obvious their relationship isn't going well. She feels neglected. She wants to make dinner, and she's mad about it, so she's angry cooking. And at some point, Trevor decides to look in the mirror, and he says Helen five times in the mirror, at which point Helen pops up, and she murders the... fuck out of him i just got to point out one thing about this scene and i think it's the most absurd part of the movie and is that becky slash stacy is wearing the most sheer of shirts ever for no fucking reason and it's just nipples galore like it's absurd yes we known to have a nipple counter but that's dead and gone and now we can respect women again (laughs) why the fuck is this happening i'm pretty sure that shirt was made out of like the same stuff they used to make those blankets on uh the apollo missions you know mylar i think it was too sheer to be mylar mylar is actually like reflective and warming like fuck that shit that's like made out of goddamn like goat skin it was absurd that's all i have to say 
No, it, it was. I made a note of it. I was just going to leave it until the end because I thought that it was probably better that way. <laughs> no, I'd rather Trevor die in a fucking heap of dumbness because... Uh, Trevor was... He was awful. Becky finds Trevor and that's it, right? End of movie. Yeah. There's there's no like after credit bullshit. This isn't Marvel. No. This is back when movies just knew how to end. Yeah. And the credits only took a, like 12 seconds to go through because only like yeah, I mean, 50 people worked on it. As Or as I call it, the good old days. All right. Let's talk about this fucking phenomenal film. Uh, transition. Bobby's mouth. Bobby dogs. B. Barker. B. Barker. Here are my issues that I bring up in the beginning. The continuity stuff. The month thing fucked me up real hard. But that can kind of be explained away through maybe poor choice in words or maybe he lied. I'll, I'll give that a wash now that I look back on it. I think now that you've pointed it out to me, though, I think you're right. I think that was just a one bad script moment. The kid needed a better explanation for what that was for, and the one that they used just caused some confusion. Or the the kid was right, and the guy in charge of the asylum was wrong. Yeah, I mean, that would be the other option, is maybe he lied to her to expedite, I don't know, like her sense of having to let go and trust the system that, they, that, that, that she had a problem. But if that were the case, then that means Becky was moving in, like, instantly. Yeah that's yeah that's just the continuity flaw that i saw the most of aside from the lore also irritated me because if we were to believe purcell this Candyman haunting ghost entity only really haunts cabrini green so anytime he's elsewhere is a flaw in the lore but i think if we're to trust purcell i think that's the key factor here I don't think we're supposed to actually trust Purcell because they make such a big deal about not writing the same old academic paper based on stuffy library research and going and getting firsthand knowledge. So I think that Purcell is intentionally a unreliable narrator. His academic understanding is the stuffy shit that they're trying to overturn in the first place. Which makes sense given the opening of the film and having the bees surrounding all of Chicago. You know, that can also be washed away once you start to really think about it. Both those things were my continuity flaws that I just, I thought they were glaring and I wanted to bring them up. I think they're both good points. I think the month one, you're probably straight up right about. I think the Purcell one is interpretation-able, interpretable. The other point that I wanted to make was uh, the end in the fire. My original interpretation was that the Candyman only ceased to exist because they killed him, right? Like the thought of them killing him. So they stopped believing in him. He needs believers to exist as a very driving point of the movie Mm -hmm. is that he needs believers. And as they burned him, they stopped believing that has a very large flaw in it is that in order to kill something, you have to believe that it exists and in killing it, you believe that it exists more because you gave it a form in a body to murder. Right, right. So he should exist even harder after this point. I had a slightly different take on this that was the same line of thought, but a different conclusion. She comes in with all of her academic hoity-toitiness and tells him that Candyman is not real. They capture the guy with the hook early on when he attacks her, which makes the people in the green think that the Candyman isn't real because they just caught a guy they pin the murders on. And then at the end of the movie, she crawls out of the fire. Candyman does not. So then everybody is at her funeral because they think that she is the Candyman. 
So now they believe in her. So the Candyman legend has literally transferred to her. Except Jake sees the Candyman. Remember I pointed that out? Yeah. So everybody except Jake, I think, thinks that she is the Candyman. And that's why they're bringing her the hook. And that's why at the end of the movie, she comes back when he says Helen in the mirror. I didn't see it that way. And I, I kind of agree with your conclusion a little bit more than mine. What you're thinking is right, except you missed that one transference, you know, because now they mm-hmm. do believe even harder, just like you said they should. But because she was the one that came out, not him, they believe in her. I think I only believed this scenario because I have the knowledge of sequels. Uh, see, I, I've never seen the sequels, so I, I'm just going straight off what we got here. I've never seen the sequels. I just have knowledge that they exist and that they also include Tony Todd. If you were to say, John, based on what you have in front of you, how would you put Tony Todd in a sequel? The answer is Jake, the one kid believes. So Tony Todd can still have what I would say is a diminished influence, but he could be like trying to rebuild his legacy in the subsequent films. Well, the subsequent film takes place in New Orleans and it does not involve Jake. So it's just a money grab. Then I like mine better. Sorry, Candyman 2. I like yours better as well. Without seeing it, we've passed judgment. Candyman 2 gets it down. All the downs. <laughs> we'll do a side episode on Candyman 2, maybe. You can do all of them. Fuck it. Let's make this a thing. So, yeah, but my feeling, aside of, outside of my continuity, weird feelings about this story and all that stuff, I fucking love this movie. It It's probably my second favorite of the movies we've watched thus far. Damn, yo. What's, what's the number one? The Thing. I can deal with that. Because The Thing, in my opinion, is, I don't know, my top three movies of all time. Oh, no. I mean, this, of the movies we watch, The Thing beats us out hands down. Uh, but as far as like storytelling and, and dramatic reveal and, and all the things that this movie does very well, it's, it's up there in league with The Thing. This movie, on paper, makes no fucking sense. Like, you tell me you've got a hook-hand guy that's a, a black aristocratic slave portrait painter who's made of bees, who's haunting the bad parts of Chicago in the 80s and 90s. And I'm just like, what the fuck are you talking about? But everything in this movie, like the cinematography, the editing, the music, Tony Todd's performance, Virginia Madsen's performance, Vanessa Williams' performance, the the little kid, everything in this movie just worked so well that, you know, on, on top of all that, there's that layer of, you know, sort of social awareness that makes it, I don't know, particularly interesting, especially given sort of the time that we're living in now, which is sort of more of a social awakening. But this social awakening was happening during the 90s. It's, it just wasn't as long-lived or as, uh, just wasn't covered, I guess. Media present. In the early 90s, whenever you saw movies that were about, you know, the inner city or about black protagonists or, you know, about women, they always had this weird sort of 1990s sort of condescension to them. Does that make sense? Yes. And this movie doesn't feel like it's condescending towards the people in the the tenements. It doesn't feel like it's condescending towards Virginia Madsen or Bernadette. Like they are dealing with some of the masculine bullshit in the academic dinner scene. They're dealing with some of it around them but the movie doesn't treat them poorly because of you know their their status i don't know like there's no sense of like tokenism or whatever you want to call it this movie definitely isn't dated via its portrayal of people if anything i think this movie was a way ahead of its time and i think that's what i'm trying to articulate and you're doing it better i don't know if it nailed it but like it did it a damn sight better than most things you know i mean there's an entire generation of movies in between this and now that 
did this very poorly and just kind of glanced over these things just to get a scare out there. This dug into those things to make the scare more worthy or relatable yeah more uncomfortable more give you more feeling i think that's what makes this movie so endearing to me like it's it's uncomfortable and it it needs to be sometimes but it's not so uncomfortable you can never watch it again and the uncomfortability comes from empathizing with the characters the scene where virginia madsen is being strip searched you know it's hard to watch and then you watch the scene with uh vanessa williams when she's talking about being compared to the guys out front it's it, it feels real Virginia Madsen is developing paranoia about the infidelities of her husband and like all of these things they're not sensational at all but they're very understandable they're using it to further the story which I think is uh, admirable because most movies don't do that but the other thing I want to bring up this movie doesn't recant anything it's trying to do by giving you new information as a viewer it assumes you followed and paid attention Instead of doing what movies nowadays do in this horrible fucking recanting trope of, oh, let me go show this to you from a different point of view to make you understand it. Fuck that shit. Well, there's no omniscient narrator. It's just, we've got Virginia Madsen. Yeah, and I love that about this. Is You don't know. You don't know if some of this was her psychosis and she did murder a dog or kidnap a child. Or maybe she was inhabited by, uh, you know, Tony Todd. Possessed. You don't know if Tony Todd did this and he's a more of a corporal being than we originally thought or or what have you. You have no idea. You have to draw your own conclusions about the story in which you are given. And I absolutely love that. So I think we can we can summarize that as this movie doesn't treat the audience like they're idiots. Yeah. It's fucking fantastic. And plus 20,000 points for Tony Todd's voice. Oh, God. I would give up my physical form to be Tony Todd's voice. <clears throat> Just to be the voice. Don't, I don't even need the bees in the hook. Just give me the voice. Why did you have to say fuck so much? Uh, mostly because it's the only word I know. All right, buddy. So uh, next movie. way I see this is we got just two choices. We got Virginia Madsen and we got Jake the Kid, whose name I do not know. Dewan Guy. I think I said it right for the first time ever. And even if you didn't, standard apology. Anyone, anyone who listens to this show knows that names are not our strong point or facts. I thought, unlike The Prophecy, Virginia Madsen turned in a spectacular performance in this, and there is no reason why we shouldn't pick her. All right, let's go with Virginia Madsen. I love it. I poked around the interwebs. It turns out they have lists of movies that people have appeared in. Did you know this? Are you shitting me? I know. It's hard to believe. All right. So what did you find in this magical list of movies? Two standouts first is well the standout would have been highlander 2 so we have three standouts the haunting it's sort of a modern horror film 98 99 i think we have the all-time perennial classic always plays around christmas time in my household highlander 2 total joke i do not watch that movie and then we have what i think might be the dark horse candidate a uh, dc animated version of wonder woman you know i i recently tried to watch the first Highlander on Amazon because it was free. I had to stop. I spent my entire time yelling at the movie for showing the lights. The one of the opening car chase scenes was uh, so awful and so eighties and so dis- horrible. I, I I couldn't I couldn't go any further. So um, Dark Horse candidate. You want to go with the the cartoon woman Wonder Woman? I bet it's better than most DC movies have ever been. Bef- 
after its time. What you're saying is you're willing to blind bet that this is better than the Justice League. I'm blind betting that this is better than every DC movie that has come out since the second in the Dark Knight series. (laughs) Ooh, now we're getting risky. I think this is a fun bet. I think we should see what happens. Fuck it. Let's suspend all disbelief and go animated. You know what I like about this, though? Cartoons are fantastic. I just, I've always loved cartoons. Big fucking fan. I'm surprised this hasn't come up before. Let's go cartoon. Let's voice actor the fuck out of this shit. Uh, well, stay tuned for uh, Wonder Woman, starring Virginia Madsen. Yeah, this is going to cause a lot of uh, confusion, but just stick with us. We'll make it work. No, it's Wonder Woman starring Virginia Madsen. Not that other Wonder Woman with that crazy lady. And the other Chris Pine? <laughs> Chris Chris Van Pine Hemsworth? Chris Pratt Van Pinesworth, damn it. <laughs> I apologize. All right, cool. Let's get out of here. The music for this episode was provided by Vandalay. You can find them on the Facebooks at Vandalay Music or VandalayMusic.com. That's V-A-N-D-A-L-A-Y Music.com. And if you want to hear assholes talk about different movies than the ones we talked about here, then go and check out our friends Mac and Peter at Super Movie Ball. Find them at SuperMovieBall.com and iTunes. And other podcast sources that I haven't bothered verifying for you yet. Still haven't had enough? Then check out Peter's Movie Nights on SoundCloud. That's Peter's M-O-V-Y-N-I-T-E-S. I just don't want the audience to think I hated this movie because I, I, in fact, spoiler, did not. Yeah, I give this like four thumbs up. Yeah, compared to what we've been watching, this is like fucking amazing. Oh, God, this is like the best movie we've seen all season, aside from The Thing. Tremors. I would, I'd put this above Tremors, I think. As far as artistry goes, yes. But out of just pure beer drinking enjoyment, I think Tremors gets the old yeehaw. Oh, I mean, it's got toilet beer in it. Of course it gets the old yeehaw. <laughs> gets my fucking motor running like a goddamn tractor. So the, the pain in the ass part is I'm going to have to edit all this shit into the end of the fucking episode. And we haven't even gotten to the cast yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, eh, you know. <laughs>